No, we're not used to this. Let me give a round of applause. <laughs> I did make him do that. He's right. I told him, hey, Aaron, just say it quick and as if you know what you're talking about and no one knows the difference. But going through that, there may be two thoughts cross your mind. Number one, you may have been laughing like, wow, that was that was what I was expecting for that name. And number two, you may have been wondering, what in the world does this have to do with my life today, going through this genealogy? Anyone have that thought? Yeah, yeah I mean, come on. We, we go through some of them in like the first or second chronicles where it's like, what does this even have to do with me? Like, why am I reading this? And so today, I want to, to hopefully get across that this does speak to your life today. In fact, we'll see it speaks to what we see today in the social unrest. We'll see how it speaks to uh, um, what's plastered all over media and racial division, things like that. We'll see that in this genealogy. And so it is very relevant to today. And so what we're going to do is do two parts, not five like sometimes I do, but we'll do two parts. The first part is that we're going to walk through this text. And we'll see that Jesus is God's divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. Jesus is God's divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. And when I keep on saying all peoples for or of all peoples, I'm not saying for everyone, as you'll see in the context, but I'm saying for all types of people, all peoples. We'll see that in this text. That's the first part. And the second part is we're going to answer the question, how does this genealogy impact my life? So I promise you, we'll get to that. But here, the first part is Jesus is God's divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. So if you have your Bible, if you haven't already, open to Luke chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have your Bible or your phone, there's a Bible right in front of your pew or in the back of your pew. It's going to be page 806 if you're using the, the church Bible there. Luke chapter 3. And as we go through this text... As we look at the what this text is saying about Jesus as this divine agent, I'm going to make some side comments. As you probably realize, I like to do that because there's so much in this text. These, this main idea is clear, but there's also these, these other points that may not be up with that idea, but it's so good. We can't pass over it. So let's dive into this. So verse, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So last week, we focused on John the Baptist. We've seen, through this very beginning of Luke, the first three chapters here, this interwoven narrative of John the Baptist and Jesus. It just seems to go back and forth. Talks about John, then Jesus, then John, then Jesus. Then they're both together. Now it's John, then it's Jesus. It's interwoven. This text here is kind of the transition where now it's all Jesus. It's all pointed to Jesus. John the Baptist has been pointed to Jesus, the coming one, the one that's coming after me. And now Jesus is on the scene. He is the divine agent. Here he is. And this baptism points to this. And we see at this baptism, God the Father's endorsement of Jesus as the agent. He does this in two ways. One is a divine word, and two is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So those two signs endorses Jesus as the divine agent 
of reconciliation that God has chosen. So here we go. So Jesus baptized. This is a quick note. Why? Why is he baptized? Because we see that this baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We saw that last week. Jesus did not have to repent because he's sinless. But he did it to, to identify with the people that he has come to save, to be a substitute for. That's why he's being baptized. And here's a side comment that I could not overlook, is look at this. Look how it starts. What was Jesus doing? He was praying. He was praying, and then the heavens opened up. Many of the key events in Jesus' life has to do or is associated with prayer. His baptism. When he chose the 12 disciples, he prayed the whole night before. Peter's confession was prayer. The transfiguration had to do with Jesus' prayer. The Lord's prayer, obviously prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, prayer. In Revelation 8, we get a picture into heaven of what happens when the saints pray. Listen to this. This is Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Prayers of the saints. As Matthew Henry says, the prayers of the saints come up before God in a cloud of incense. No prayer was ever denied audience or acceptance. God, yep, that's my son. Yep, the one running there. <laughs> Bring it back. <laughs> we pray, and it comes before God. And I, I could not overlook that. Jesus is praying, and the heavens open up. A picture of God, uh, he's coming. His incentive. He's touching down into our everyday lives. And so the heavens are open, and then we see the two signs of endorsement from God the Father on this divine agent, Jesus his Son. We see that the Holy Spirit descends. We'll see very soon in Luke 4, God willing, that Jesus, he points to and he refers to Isaiah, a passage in Isaiah that says, and this kicks off his ministry, his earthly ministry, that says in the first verse of the verse he quotes, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we see this picture here at the baptism. That God endorses Jesus. This is my son. The Holy Spirit comes anoints him. And it's very interesting that Luke makes very explicitly in bodily form. Right? You see that? The Holy Spirit just said it in bodily form. Um, there are what would be called heresy to deny the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was working for a, a flooring company, and one of the guys I worked with, um, he was what you would call a oneness Pentecostal, the United Pentecostal Church. And we would label them as heretics because they deny the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which we see all three of them in this passage. God the Father speaks, God the Son is baptized, God the Holy Spirit descends. And he would argue, I got many conversations with him as we worked, uh, some were, I would say, a little heated, um, but he would say, oh, no, it's just a, a figure of speech. But Luke is emphasizing the Holy Spirit came in bodily form. And there was a voice from heaven while this happens. God the Father speaks. 
The other time we see this happen is at the transfiguration. But we see God the Father speaks. And look what he says. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. In one sentence, God the Father endorses, this is my son. This is my divine agent who has come for me to work through reconciliation for all peoples. And his announcement has so many clear uh, Old Testament references. Psalm 2, which we've referred to many times already here as we go through Luke, it's a messianic psalm. Listen to this. It says, the, uh, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Isaiah 42, it talks about God's chosen servant. This is the first verse. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. No doubt, God the Father, is he, no, he, he's the one that spoke this word. And he's saying, this is him. John the Baptist was pointing, the one coming to me, the one who's standing, I won't be able, I'm not even worthy to tie. He's coming. The Lord is coming, the one with the winning forth, the judgment. Well, he's here. He is the one. This is God, the Son, the one who I'm all well pleased. Jesus is the royal, divine, chosen, messianic agent of God. We see this with uh, the Holy Spirit descending, you know, with God the Father speaking. Sign note. I like sign notes. Fathers. No doubt, God the Father is the greatest, the absolute best father. For a lack of good words, that was, that was bad language. Who we want to imitate. Look at what God the Father says to his son. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. No doubt we should often intentionally tell our sons and daughters, I am pleased with you. I am pleased with you. Not tied to performance, but just because you are my son, you're my daughter, I am pleased with you. But so we see this, the, the coming one that John the Baptist, his whole life was about pointing to, which I've been saying. In the womb, we saw that he, he, he leaped when Jesus, Jesus came in the womb with Mary. We see that with John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus. He's here. He is finally here. Here he is, the divine agent. Verse 23, here we go. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, and then the genealogy continues. I'm not going to read through it again, uh, just because, yep. I'm trying to figure out a good transition. I don't got a good one. Let me pick some apart, and then we'll talk about the genealogy. Luke specifies he was 30 years of age. And that might seem very insignificant. Like, yep, like, I don't really care how old he was. But I think it is significant because it continues to build on the amazing figure in this divine age of Jesus is. For example... At 30 years of age is when the priesthood, you become a priest of the line of Levi. At 30 years, this is from Numbers uh, 4.3, is when the priest became priest at age 30. Age 30 is when Ezekiel the prophet began his ministry. At age 30, maybe the most important, is when King David started reigning, 2 Samuel 5.4. Did you hear that? Jesus' age connects him with the priests, the prophets, and the kings. Jesus is our high priest. He is the prophet, and he is the king. So I think that's very purposeful on, on Luke's part saying this. But then it continues with the. Uh, let me let me stop there. Another side note. Who I, I was just talking to someone about this. Um, 
if you're above 30 years old and you read that, you're like, well, my time has passed because I'm not going to be starting any kind of ministry soon. Don't think that whatsoever. Moses, probably in the Jews' eyes, one of the greatest leaders in history, Moses. Guess how old he was when he started his ministry? I'm sure some of us know. 80 years old. 80 years old. And he did that for 40 years at least. So if you think, hey, I'm past my prime. I'm just, I'm going out the pasture. Nope, not too close. God is not done using you until he is done. So don't, don't, don't take that as a, hey, I'm past 30. I'm done. Nope, not at all. Moving on. Here we go. So we see here, also before the genealogy, the, the statement, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. We see that statement. Luke isn't being like, uh, what, what's the word? He's not being mean, for lack of a better word. But he's suggesting of the, the virgin conception, the virgin birth, as was supposed. He wasn't the physical descendant of Joseph, but he was indeed the legal descendant of Joseph. So we see that, like, not snuck in there, but it's clear in there. But then we get to the genealogy. So listen here. You might, who skips over the genealogy when they're reading through the Bible? Yep, yep. I'll be honest. I do a lot of times too. Because you're like, hey, like, I got stuff to do. And God, I'm li- I'm, I want to be encouraged here. I'm not sure what this is going to do here. Like Aaron, I can't pronounce half the words. What am I doing, right? But genealogies uh, were very important to the Jews. Very important. They were used for things such as the inheritance of the land, uh, are good, the taxes, and then the, the lineage of priests or the royal lineage. They were very important, and they kept very tedious genealogies. Unfortunately, lots of them, if not the majority, were burned up with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But they were very meticulous about keeping the genealogies. That's why we see it in First Chronicles. I'm not even sure how many chapters is just loaded with these are the survivors. These are the ones who are coming out of exile. It's just loaded because it's massively significant. And we see again, and this is, I, I, you probably have heard me say this multiple times. Luke is rooting our faith in history. He's been doing this from the beginning. When he talks about who, who's ruling at the time, what Caesar, what governor, what, what like Pontius Pilate, Tiberius, he names all of them. He's rooting our faith in history. Our faith is reasonable. It's not a wishful thinking that's just out there that we just hope this happens. Is rooted in history and fact. Now, a little bit more about the genealogy before we look at it. You probably have noticed, if you read Matthew, that there's a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, right? And you may have noticed, if you are one to read a lot of it, they're different. Significantly so, in some places, they're different between Matthew and Luke. Does this mean that the Bible is untrustworthy and there's errors? Nope, not at all. Let me give some explanations. I, I take this time to do this because I think it is important. If this is what our faith is built on, then it better be solid. And so let me give a few explanations why in Luke there might be different names in order compared to Matthew. One possible explanation is the existence of the leveret marriages. And if you remember, the leveret marriages is when, uh, let's say, uh, Casey and I, I don't think she's in here, good. Let's say we got married, and say we didn't have kids, and I die, and she'd cry for years probably, probably not take up another husband for decades, right? That's not true. But say I die before we have kids. According to custom, uh, my brother, which don't have any brothers, but my next relative would then um, have kids with my wife in my name. 
That's an elaborate marriage. So those kids that they have is in my name, even though I'm dead. And so that's that's a very big possibility between Matthew and Luke. Where they're different, Matthew might be referring to the, the original husband, while Luke may be referring to the one that came, the relative that came that had kids in their name. It's the same lineage. It's just a different guy. Does that make sense? So that's a, a very strong explanation of why there's differences between Matthew and Luke. A second one is that both of them clearly are abridged. They're not even they're not purposely exhaustive. That's not the purpose of Matthew or Luke. They're not exhaustive. They skip names. And that's possible for this reason. In Luke we see the the pattern of a son of, the son of, the son of, as you heard uh, Aaron go at it, the son of, the son of, the son of. Um, in the original language, that's not even there. It, the son of is referred once, and then it's assumed in the rest, but it basically says a son of Eli, and then the whole pattern is so-and-so of, so-and-so of, so-and-so of, so-and-so of. That's how it literally is. The point of that being, it does not restrict this genealogy to literal father and son relationships. It could be another, it could be grandfather and then the grandson. It could skip. Same thing with Matthew. It's instead of son of, it says the father of, the father of, the father of, and the father uh, in that language isn't like ours where it's literally the father, but it, it means literally ancestor as well. So it can also skip. He, the, a Keith, the ancestor of, of so and so, of Caleb, and so and so, it could skip Aaron. Sorry, Aaron. But it could skip. So I'm saying that they could skip different people, and there are some differences. Last explanation, because I do think this is important for us to know. Is that there's there's a chance that Matthew is looking at Joseph lineage and Luke is looking at Mary's. And that would account for some different names. He might be, well, Joseph's on there. Why would they go through why would Luke add Joseph at the end or at the beginning? That was a, that was custom at the time that they would add Joseph, even though he's not the fiscal descendant. But whatever the case, if I lost you there, I'll bring you back in. Whatever the case, whatever the right answer is, we have no reason to question or doubt the veracity and the actual accuracy of the scripture here. There's a lot of different explanations for it, but there's no doubt. One reason why we don't need to doubt it is because Jesus' enemies never, never questioned his lineage. They could have easily discredited Jesus as a Messiah if they just said, well, Jesus, are you really... Of the, like a descendant of David. Are you really? That quick, it could have been done for Jesus. But they never did. Because it was clear that his lineage was with David. Alright. Look at the, the genealogy in front of you. Now we're going to get the good stuff. Looking at that, there's a lot of unknown names, right? A lot of unknown names. A lot of people in the Bible who have never been mentioned except for in this passage. But there's a lot of uh, names you may be familiar with. Zerubbabel, David, Boaz, Perez, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Shem, Noah, Seth, Adam. Those are probably the names that, yeah, I've heard those names before. There are four key names I want to focus on. I'm not going to hit them all, but there's four that I want us to focus on that are significant here. It's David, Abraham, Adam, and then the last son of God at the end. David, the first one, it means that he's the rightful king and Messiah. He is of the royal lineage. If David wasn't in there, there's no way he could be the Messiah and no way he could be the king. But he is. He is a son of David. He is a descendant of David. Abraham, his name points to the truth that Jesus is the promised seed whom all the Abrahamic promises are realized. 
Galatians, I keep referring to Galatians, keep on coming back up. He talks about the seed of Abraham being singular. If you remember Galatians chapter 3, um, this is what it's talking about. Jesus is the seed. Adam, if you're familiar with Matthew, he only goes back to Abraham. He stops at Abraham because his purpose is to point to uh, the national promise of a king to Israel. But Luke continues on to Adam. And this is where we get the key here. Luke points to that Jesus is for all peoples, not just the Jews. He doesn't stop at Abraham. But his attention is to show that Jesus is for all peoples. And praise God, because I assume the majority of us here are not Jews. Praise God, because I'm a Gentile, most likely you're a Gentile. Praise God that it doesn't, it's not just with the Jews, but it's for all peoples. And then the title of the Son of God can serve as a dual purpose here. One, refer to Adam as uh, a, a, the creation of God. And then two, it could refer to Jesus, being that we just saw it in the baptism. It's kind of a, a sandwich. This is the Son of God, the deity, the divine agent. So these four names, David, Abraham, Adam, and then the Son of God, it shows that Jesus is the culmination of a great line of promise. Through David, he's a coming eternal king. Through Abraham he and the Isaac and Jacob, he's the blessing for all the nations that through him all we bless. Through Adam, he's the promise that the descendant of Eve will crush the Satan's head. That's Jesus. That he's the son of God, the divine agent. So what does that mean? Jesus is the divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. Luke makes this very clear with his genealogy. That's the first part. Here's the second part, which you probably are still wondering. What does this genealogy have to do with my life today? Here we go. We have looked at already, as we look through Luke, some implications for our life that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he's the seed of Abraham. We've looked at that. We will definitely cover that in the future. But since we've looked at that, I want to focus on the last part. That's being Jesus, the son of Adam. Why is that so significant? And the reason is because Jesus has come to reconcile all peoples, all types of people with God. He's a savior for all peoples. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, white, black, white, Native American, whatever. Jesus is God's divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. And there's a twin truth in this. Yes, Jesus is the reconciler of all peoples with God. He's also the reconciler of all peoples with other peoples in Christ. Jesus reconciled all peoples, all types of people with God, reconciled them with God on the cross. He also reconciled all peoples with other peoples on the cross in Christ. This truth is further explained in Ephesians 2, so please turn there. I'm not going to go very deep in this, this chapter or this section here, but we need to look at this because Paul just expands on what Luke is, is, is given here. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Jesus is the divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. That's what Luke is saying. He reconciled all peoples with God, and in Christ, all peoples are reconciled together. We see that in Luke, that he, he, he gives this, and Paul picks this up 
and he expands on Ephesians 2. So please, if you have it in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 11. But before we get there, I want to give a little background. There is social and racial conflict going on in Ephesus. In fact, it's going on in Rome at this time. It's going on in a lot of places, uh, if you read through the New Testament letters, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And I use racial in the same way that the, our modern world does um, the racial as a different races, which there is a different races, different ethnicities, but I'm using the word as we typically hear it, racial. So you got the Jews and the Gentiles. At one time, for the majority, God's people were mainly tied to one ethnic group, the Jews, for centuries. Mainly tied to the ethnic group. But in Christ, the scope is for all peoples, the Gentiles included. So now you've got the Jews and the Gentile believers, and there is conflict, there's division, there's hostility between them. Paul addresses this on different parts. But what I'm trying to get across is Paul is writing this into an explosive situation between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. So here we go, verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, Gentiles being the non-Jews, called the uncircumcision by what is what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen? Can I get amen? Listen to his words. They were separated from Messiah. They were alienated, strangers, no hope, far off. But now in Jesus Christ, you've been brought near. You've been brought near in Christ. Amen. That's that first point. In Christ, he's the divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples, Jews and then the Gentiles. We are all, all types of people are reconciled to God in Christ. And then he continues on that twin truth. Verse 14. For he himself, being Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, express ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall. No question, Paul is probably referring to and purposely referring to the actual wall in the temple, which stopped. This is, hey, Jews uh, or Gentiles, you go this far, but past this wall, only Jews can. No doubt, Paul is referring to this that the dividing wall is destroyed. Jesus has broken down the wall. That wall represented social, religious, racial, and spiritual separation between Gentiles and Jews, but Jesus has destroyed it. He says he abolished the law expressed in ordinances, saying, referring to the ceremonial laws, which divided Jews and Gentiles. The Jews would be unclean if they did stuff with the Gentiles. In Christ, in his death, abolished. The ceremonial laws abolished. Then listen to the language of reconciliation that Jesus accomplished. He says, Jesus is our peace. He made peace between all the peoples. He made one new man in place of two. He reconciled in one body through the cross. He killed the hostility between the groups of people. In this original context, he's referring to the Jews and the Gentiles. We talk about all peoples in the church, those who are in Christ. 
He has made peace and killed the hostility between whites and blacks, Native Americans and Australians and Europeans and so on and so forth. Jesus had made peace and killed the hostility. As different peoples are brought together in Jesus, they're brought together with each other. And we saw this in Galatians. Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If I can very loosely paraphrase that or bring it to our place, there's no black, no white, no Native American or white, no rich and poor, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. As one past from church history has said this, Paul turns the Ephesians away from viewing the diversity of men and bids them look for unity nowhere but in Christ. To whatever extent the two might differ in their former condition, in Christ they have become one man. And then the next following verse, Paul writes that we're fellow citizens. We are being joined together and built together to a dwelling place for God. So what do we see here? The buzzword, racial reconciliation, has been achieved by Christ on the cross. It has been achieved by Christ on the cross. Saying that does not dismiss the fact that wrongs are done. That is not dismissing that there's instances of individual racism, prejudice, what the Bible calls the sin of partiality. There's, that's not denying that or dismissing that. The sin is present like every other sin. But we loudly proclaim and we praise God for the truth that racial reconciliation has already been achieved in Christ. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans, he says this, it doesn't take 240 years to achieve racial reconciliation. It takes about two minutes and 40 seconds when the cross of Christ is involved. Uh, Dr. Vody Bauckham, he writes this, he says, racial reconciliation is not something you and I have to achieve. It's something you and I have to believe because Christ has already achieved it. It is done. It is real. We are one in Christ. So Jesus is the agent of reconciliation for us to God and us to each other. Jesus is the agent, not us. We can't atone for our sins. Reparations won't atone for our sins. Jesus is the Savior and reconciler of all peoples. All privilege is equal at the cross. We all deserve punishment and everlasting hell. All justice is equal at the cross. Either the one who rejects Christ receives justice but being thrown into hell for rebelling against God, or the one who believes in Christ receives justice by God pouring out his wrath on Christ in his place. So that's what we're seeing here from Luke, from this genealogy, is these twin truths. One, Jesus is the agent of reconciliation for all peoples, meaning that he's the agent of reconciliation for all peoples with God, not just the Jews, but for all peoples. He's also the agent of reconciliation between all peoples in Christ. He is the agent of reconciliation. So let me end today with two short passages. This first one is from Revelation. And it's a glimpse of the reconciliation that Jesus has purchased with his blood. Here it is. After this, John speaking, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
That's what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus has purchased. The last passage, the second one, is a command. What's significant about this, it's not a command to achieve racial reconciliation. It's a command to maintain the unity we already have in Christ. Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the callings which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that's our call, to maintain this unity. We already have unity as Jesus is our bond of peace. We are one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God we have. So from this genealogy, Maintain this unity and peace that Jesus has bought with his blood. Do not show partiality based on money, social status, ethnicity, race. Do not overlook instances when the sin of partiality has been committed. And equally, do not, do not rebuild the wall that Jesus has torn down. Do not rebuild the wall that Jesus has torn down. And do not stir up hostility where Jesus has died to make peace. Jesus is God's divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. Please pray with me. Lord, Lord, we praise you. God, I can think of all, all the sins that I have committed in my past, this past week. Lord, we are so thankful that in you we are reconciled with God. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for peace. And God, we, with all the stuff we see on, on the media that we see all the time, Lord, may we be that people who are unified regardless of our money, social status, race, gender, whatever. May we see unity in these differences because of you. We're unified in Christ. We're one because of Christ. May we be a people that our community, the world looks at and just wonders, what what do they know? What do they have that we don't? And we see all this mess. Lord, may we present that hopeful message. It's because of Jesus Christ, the divine agent of reconciliation for all peoples. He has killed hostility. He has made the peace. Lord, may we, may we work, as Paul says, to maintain this unity that we already have. Lord, give us grace. Give us forgiveness. Um, and humility where we have wronged other people based on these different things. Lord, may may we seek forgiveness. May we give forgiveness when we've been wrong. God, we are here. We are your people, and we are open. Lord, give us grace. Father, be with us this week. Each different family, different individual, be with us this week. Lord, we ask this in your son's name. Amen.